Good morning. My name is Bradley Steele. I'm one of the ministers at University Church of Christ in Abilene, Texas. So I feel very out of place here with hills and water and things like that. Um, I'm supposed to put sit around a sign-up sheet that has my ACU pin, so please do not steal the ACU pin. Um, today we're gonna we're gonna talk kind of up, we're going to talk about retrieving communion. But as I was thinking about it, I'm going to do an end around on you. As I was thinking about it more and more, before I put kind of on blast our, the evolution of, of communion of the Lord's Supper into a kind of glorified TED Talk in most of our churches, I wanted to talk about a little bit why I think this is so important, so important that we retrieve some early church practices and our own service of the Lord's Supper. And that's one, uh, because the Lord himself does say, you know, this is my body, this is my blood, and whoever does not eat my flesh and drink my blood has no part, has no share in me. And so we should probably take this pretty seriously. Um, And then second, I think in in many of our churches, uh, the kind of uh, democratization of communion, the the lowering of the stakes, the trying to make it more popularized and and easily accessible reflects some larger trends in churches of Christ uh, in general. And and not just churches of Christ in general, but a crisis in all churches in the United States and really in the West uh, generally. So I wanted to identify what I see as the crisis, uh, identify two different Uh, responses to this crisis that most churches uh, are tending to to go towards, especially in churches of Christ, uh, and then suggest maybe a third way that we could approach uh, what lies ahead of us. So the crisis in American churches is just declining numbers uh, across the board. And we knew that uh, prior to COVID and then after COVID, most churches kind of fell off a cliff as far as attendance and membership goes. Does anybody go to a church that has is back to their pre-COVID numbers? Okay, <laughs> there's very few that I've I've, I've seen. Most if there's some that are like 80 percent, and that's that's miraculous. Um, compound that problem with that there's declining denominational loyalty. Um, and so people uh, don't necessarily go to Churches of Christ because they're convicted of our denominational commitments, uh, but rather will go anywhere. So I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but this goes with the hyper-politicization. So in Abilene, uh, you know, you have 50 different Churches of Christ, and you have about six different uh, large Church of Christ options. But during the pandemic, as our churches became more politicized than they already were, and especially in the run-up to the 2020 election, you had people leaving very traditional, very conservative churches of Christ uh, to go to one of the big box Baptist churches because they could get the political rhetoric they were looking for there rather uh, than any of the churches of Christ in town, which I just, it kind of blew my mind, (laughs) the way that we we don't have any theological commitment so much anymore as we do we're looking for a political or cultural uh, kind of center. Also, number four, one of our crises is in years past, in decades past, we could rely um, on a somewhat Christian cultural identity in the United States as a whole. So some shared commitments, some shared beliefs, and that's disappearing more 
and more. Um, and because of these different things, we've moved more to a strategy of entertainment over catechesis. Catechesis just being your $10 word for Christian uh, formation, for handing on the faith down to the next generation. And because we're seeing these declining numbers, rather than re-upping, rebuilding the fences and building a strong foundation in faith and practices, we've moved more towards an entertainment model. So for many of us in Churches of Christ, that means numbers are down, so what's the solution? You hire a full-time worship minister, right? And if that doesn't work, then you get a praise team on stage. And if that doesn't work, then you get a band on stage. And if that doesn't work, then you close up shop and sell the building, I think, at that point, because who knows what to do if the band doesn't fix everything. Um, also, we're facing increasing hostility uh, in a post-Christian culture. Now, I don't, I don't want anybody to think, I'm, think we have a persecution complex, because we definitely don't. We're not being persecuted. But uh, the cultural cachet of, of Christian beliefs is not what it once was even 20 uh, years ago. And it's no longer, uh, even in, in West Texas, and I don't know where everybody else is from, it's no longer assumed that you're going to be a member of a particular church. Right? It's just different than it was. And then we have a broader social crisis with uh, changing uh, mores from uh, homosexuality and same-sex attraction down to the nature of gender itself. So we have all of these uh, different things that we just don't really know how to face. And there's two different responses that I see for the most part in response, uh, well, common responses. Uh, we can be paralyzed and do nothing. Uh, often we get into alarmist, and so we see persecution behind every bush and tree, even if it's just, you know, disagreement. Uh, three is to exit, right? Four would be to surrender to the culture. So you see that in many mainline churches, kind of just accepting uh, the new cultural paradigm is what the church's paradigm should be. Uh, five would be to circle the wagons, to look inwards. And then uh, six would be to fight. And typically, I think that's behind... Uh, a lot of the politicization in our churches is they see on a political realm the conflict with a secular culture. They want us to go that way rather than looking to scripture. So different paths. One would be retrenchment. And what I mean by that is if, if you're in a church of Christ that has moved past sectarianism, meaning that you're in a church of Christ that no longer believes that this church is the only church, the capital T, true, capital C, true church, you have a huge problem. Um, because all of a sudden, these denominations that were once our enemies, uh, why don't you just go there instead? And so you have to figure out, well, what is it that we believe? What are these commitments that we have? And so in response uh, to kind of the, the crisis that we're facing, declining numbers, some churches are moving towards retrenchment, so moving back towards a sectarian kind of outlook, building back up uh, the fences. It reflects an unwillingness to change, unwillingness to learn, and really a lot of wishful thinking, hoping that the good old days will someday finally return. Unfortunately, that typically leads to being non-missional, uh, and there's some socioeconomic realities to that as well. If you don't have newer people coming into the fold, then you don't have money uh, for missions. And the bad news is that even in these churches, they're losing their children anyway. So what's, what's the mark of a healthy church? Anybody know? Crying babies. And what's the mark of a super healthy church? 
watching those babies grow up and then have their own babies and like keeping your, your people in the fold. But they don't seem to be succeeding at that either. Um, another path is evangelicalism. And I, I want to be really clear on this because there's, I'm going to give you my hot take. There's good evangelicalism and there's bad evangelicalism. Um, there's a good evangelicalism that most churches of Christ are not interested in because it's broadly reformed and Calvinist, and we're very scared of that word Calvinist. The evangelicalism I'm talking about here is kind of the mass market, big box church kind, low commitment, low fences. And what that tends to do is go where the numbers are. It's market oriented. So if you read a lot of our churches in in, in like inner cities or uh, at the center of any city, it doesn't have to be big, are positioned very badly for church growth. Does anybody know why that is? Do what? No one lives there. Well, either no one lives there or it's a diverse neighborhood. So the worst possible thing for church growth is diversity. So for instance, we're located in a neighborhood in Abilene that's on the hill. It's with the, I'm talking to you like you know what I'm talking about. It's this area right around ACU where there's various levels of, of socioeconomic uh, reality. So we have some of the richest areas in town and some of the poorest areas of, areas of town. We have some of the whitest neighborhoods in town and some of the brownest neighborhoods in town. It's terrible for church growth uh, because uh, what you want to do to get people bringing their friends to church is be in an area where everyone has the same socioeconomic reality, where people look like you and they don't make you uncomfortable. Now, that's it's anti-Christian, but it's very good uh, for numbers. So if you read a church growth book, mostly what they'll tell you is to move to the suburbs, to move outwards to a more homogenous area. And so a lot of times that's what you'll see in the larger churches is they're those that have decamped maybe either decamped from their original location or planted in a location that's homogenous. Uh, they also be, tend to be dependent on a superstar pastor. So charisma, uh, if you go to my church, that's a problem for you. Um, but someone who draws people to them. Unfortunately, what happens when that pastor leaves or starts another church or starts a podcast, that's the new thing. <laughs> like everybody leaves because they were there for that person, not for the community and definitely not for the theological commitments. It tends to move towards entertainment. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not just hating on worship bands. I'm really not. It can, be, it can be a beautiful thing. But many times it's less about a, uh, joining in worship the congregation coming to worship together to the Lord rather than attending a Christian rock concert. And let's be honest, Christian rock is much worse than secular rock, so why do it in the first place? Um, they tend to be individualistic, so they're trying to meet, we're trying to meet individuals' needs. And so what, that, what happens with that is you're no longer committed to scripture, but committed to making everybody feel comfortable, which moves into our culture generally. Uh, we've taken on the kind of therapeutic mindset so the reason that I come to church is not to hear the word of God spoken. It's not to be cut down and made alive by the living word of Jesus Christ himself, but rather it's to feel better, right? To feel better about myself, about my family, about how I'm doing, to get kind of uh, therapy rather than the gospel proclaimed. And so as a result, it tends to be somewhat superficial, um, being that um, it's hard to make like really thick Christianity popular. It's hard to uh, sell, like really getting into the doctrine of God, into the doctrine of the Trinity, the, the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. And so 
what ends up happening is, is, is practices get popularized. So if you've been to like a, a formerly, I think every non-denominational church is just Baptist, by the way, that's the secret behind it. If you've been to a non-denominational, i.e. Baptist church, um, communion's often on the sides. So have you, have you seen this before? They set up communion tables on the sides of the worship center, and then it's up to you if you want to get up and go. And so go and take it for yourself. But there's no like formal like blessing <laughs> or prayer or anything. It's just this like kind of option. And so it becomes very superficial. Nobody really knows what you're doing. And then finally, it's entrepreneurial. So in addition to having a superstar pastor, you need to have a CEO as well to make sure you're on the correct path. I want so obviously I think those two are negative uh, <laughs> negative ways to go. I don't know if I've made that clear at all. Um, but I think there is a third way, and a third way that fits very well with Churches of Christ. So one of our you know, founding principles, uh, beyond just visible unity of the church in general, is that we want to recapture and reinstantiate um, the Church of the Apostles. I think, I, does any of your churches have a cornerstone with like an established date on there? Ours says established AD 33. And this church built in 1955, so there's a discrepancy there. But the, the impulse there to reinstate the Church of the Apostles and to be the Church of the Apostles is what every single church should be looking for, uh, because the faith doesn't develop what was handed down to the apostles is what was handed down once uh, for all. And so we have, we have a kernel that's very good there that we need to lean into. And so a third way for us would look like virtuous dispositions, concrete uh, commitments, and renewed or new uh, practices. And that's what we'll be talking about um, with the Lord's Supper in just a minute. And so together, these, it would recognize the challenges facing uh, the church in the United States and in the West generally with sobriety, okay, recognizing that if, if trends continue and they seem to be trending, it's going to be a difficult uh, few decades, a difficult hundred years, a difficult whatever for churches in the United States. It's not, we're not going to have the cultural cachet, the cultural power, or the financial resources that we once had. So we need to be sober about that and not think that it can just change overnight unless the Lord does something miraculous, which of course, you know, the Lord may just do that, but it may be that you know, we have strayed and he is punishing us. Um, but we want to face those with sobriety, but not fear. Recognizing that what is Jesus' promise? The gates of hell will not overcome his church. And so the final victory of the saints is already assured and already finished and already accomplished. And our response is to be faithful uh, rather than to responding with fear. Uh, and so we want to respond to this with a long view rather than looking for short-term um, results. And so this path affirms our heritage, right? What I was saying about looking uh, back to the early church, recovering uh, the Church of the Apostles. It prepares for the future, um, recognizing uh, that the future is going to look different than it was for our parents and our grandparents' generation. Um, but it's looking to the one universal church, which is what we rejected and the early years of our movement. We thought we were the one and only universal church, and I think that's just wrong. And so moving forward, we can stop pretending like the church didn't start until 1820 
and look at these 2,000 years filled with these rich resources provided by the Holy Spirit uh, to look for a path forward. The situation the church finds itself in now is not new, right? There are resources for us, especially in the second, third, and fourth century for what it looks like uh, to be the church, to be faithful um, in the midst uh, of a secular uh, culture. So in short, the proposal I'm making is that we hook in uh, to this great tradition in order to establish deep roots, because the shallow, the seed that's in shallow ground is, is not, is not going to make it in the future. And the example I, I wanted to give to you before we go, uh, well, hold on, does anybody have any questions, uh, complaints, or personal attacks? <laughs> it's fine if you do. I brought my mom so she can assuage my <laughs> ego afterwards. Okay. okay. Question, yes. You mentioned about the Lord's table, that it is your choice if you want to just get up and get it. Mm-hmm. So when you mentioned that, is there someone who's going to um, uh, quote the scripture or say something about the Lord's table? Because that's the main reason. That's why all these people were there. Right. To remember what God has done for all of us. Right. Yeah. Um, it depends on so, where you... So, I'm sorry. So did you inform the church or the members, it's up to you if you want to get up and get... Oh, no, I did not do that. I've been... I, I was talking about churches that do it in that way. Oh. No, that's, that's wrong. That's heresy. That's, what, that's the old word for it. <laughs> We don't, we don't want to do that. But yes, in those churches, it kind of depends. Some, some of it will be just like background music, and they won't say anything about it's just at this time, you're welcome to go to the table. But there's typically not even, you know, just read 1 Corinthians 11, pray, and, and get, get sat back down. It's just kind of there. Um, okay, any other questions or complaints? Okay. Um, all right, so here's... Here's what kind of moved me in this direction. So do y'all remember the, in, in 20, 2016, the, the 21 Coptic martyrs? Do you remember that they were beheaded by ISIS in Saudi Arabia? Um, so does anybody know anything about the Coptic Church? The Coptic Church is, is one of the churches of the apostles. It was founded you know, within 20 to 30 years of the Lord ascending uh, into heaven. Most people think it was, it was founded uh, by Mark, who was Peter's uh, scribe, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Um, anyway, it's, it's been there <laughs> since the first century, um, but something happened in the year 636. Does anybody know what happened in 636? Islam. Islam, right? So Islam sweeps over the Maghreb, right, the northern Mediterranean uh, Middle East, and since 636, Egypt has been under Muslim domination. Since 636, it's been illegal to convert to Christianity. Since 636, it has been illegal to preach publicly the gospel. Since 636, it's been illegal right, to proselytize in any way. Since 636, you cannot marry a Christian woman or a Christian man unless they convert to Islam. Since 636, there are severe tax uh, sanctions on Christians in Egypt. And yet, right, 1,400 years later, they're creating martyrs. 
Like, how the heck is that possible? Like, what are, what are they doing? They, they don't have big churches, right? They, don't, they, don't, they definitely don't have money for a band. And yet, 1,400 years later, 1,400 years of outright oppression and true persecution, persecution that we have no idea what that's like, they're still producing martyrs. So what is that? I think it has something to do with their commitment uh, to thickness and rootedness that's rooted in these practices that have not changed for 1,400 years. So when a Christian baby is born in the Coptic church, you know, they tattoo the baby with a cross on their hand, which would be, instead of baby blessings, I mean, think about that. That would be some next level stuff. So no matter what happens, like that baby converts one day or not, they're going to know that they were raised to be members of the Lord's church. So they have this commitment to faithfulness, to handing on the fullness of the faith. And because of that, they, they've thrived and survived for 1,400 years. And I think that, that's what I want our model to be. Like we... Our, our, as C.S. Lewis would say, our, our dreams are way too low, right? We just want to survive, or we want to have the biggest church in town when we should be wanting to create martyrs. Um, okay, so let's flesh it out just a little bit. So talk about dispositions, commitments, and practices. So dispositions, like we talked about at the beginning, being clear-eyed and sober. This is the reality that surrounds us. Let's not ignore it, but let's not be afraid of it. Let's have courage that's not rooted in us or our creativity or our preaching or our music, but it's rather rooted in the Lord's promise to his church. Um, finally, it's ecumenical and Catholic, not Roman Catholic, but ecumenical, realizing that there, as, as my grandfather would say, there are Christians indeed among the sects. Um, and Catholic being that we're looking to the universal church, recognizing that there is a church that extends uh, from Jesus' ascension in the day of Pentecost to now. Um, missional. We're not looking to bring, we're, we're not going to be in the, the, the free market. We're not looking to compete with the churches around the corner for members. We're looking for lost people, right? Being missional in that way. And then patience. Uh, patience that is once again rooted in trust, that this is not our church, this is the Lord's church, and he will bring it to victory. Um, commitment, so that those dispositions lead to commitments. We're going to be rooted in principles rather than in corporate strategy. We're looking for discipleship rather than numbers, belonging rather than attendance, expectations of people rather than niceness. And what I mean by that is a lot of times uh, we lower expectations because we want people in the door. And sometimes that works and you have more numbers, but you don't actually have any Christians. Right? So expectations. This is what it looks like to follow in the path of the crucified Lord, and this is how we're going to help you do it. Uh, a commitment to neighborhood over the sprawl. So talking about what I said at the beginning, you know, church growth, the best idea is to move to a homogenous area outside the center of the city, but we're called to be the church of the Jews and the Gentiles. And so commitment to where we are, to the people we have, and learning to be one people in Christ. Uh, looking for the long term over the short term. We're wanting our babies, 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 right, to be producing martyrs, not just this current uh, 10 years. Uh, looking towards the great tradition rather than what's trendy, knowing, one, that the church is never really trendy, and when we try to follow that game, we end up losing anyways. And so that means, you know, being weird instead of cool, which is very difficult uh, for me, but I think it's worth it. Uh, practices. 
Uh, so, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Sacrament. Well, this is, we're almost done. <laughs> I've been, this, this always happens to me. Okay, so practices. Looking towards rooted, robust, thick, and rich practices. So that means sacraments for Protestants. That means baptism in the Lord's Supper. Uh, liturgy and ritual. Like different things you say each week. The Lord's Prayer. Uh, confessing our sins. Uh, looking to the church uh, calendar, maybe to organize our worship. So many, who does Advent? Does any, do any of your churches do Advent? Who celebrates Easter? You rebels. My goodness. Um, so things like that. So the church historically has organized time according to the Lord's time. So um, it, the year begins with Advent, looking to the Lord's birth at Christmas. It then moves into a Lent, a time of re repentance. Well, not only repentance, but remembering that you're human and you're going to have to die, and that that's a problem. Um, and then moving towards Easter with the Lord's resurrection, which is the first fruits of us, and then into ordinary time to Pentecost. It goes through this cycle, basically recognizing that given the choice between organizing time according to the world's calendar as opposed to the Christian calendar, perhaps we should think about organizing time itself according to the church. Um, disciplines and rules of life. So this looks like um, a lot of times we, we, we call out our parents from the pulpit and we tell them, you need to raise your kids as Christians and do better. And then we give them no strategy for how to do that other than like, do this. And so providing your church with rules of life, like here's the commitments that we as a church and we as families and individual members of this church are going to commit to together. We're going to read scripture uh, daily. Monthly, we're going to perform an act of service. Uh, daily, we're going to pray. Weekly, uh, we'll attend uh, worship service. All, all these different things. So giving like a plan that you're committed to uh, together. Uh, looking to church history, uh, to saints and martyrs. So that was, you know, I just gave you that example. But also... If you, even if I don't get to it, I've got these handouts for you. And the handouts are way better than what I would say. But one of the people we'll look to for their doctrine of the Lord's Supper is Ignatius. Um, so Ignatius of Antioch, he's right at the turn of the first century. He probably knew some of the apostles. And while he is getting um, shipped to Rome, where he's going to be eaten by wild beasts, he writes all these letters to the churches, and a lot of his letters have to do with partaking of the Lord's Supper. And one of the letters he writes, he writes the letter to the church in Rome. And the church in Rome apparently had some like connected dudes in there that knew some powerful people in powerful places. And he writes to them to say, hey, don't y'all intervene. Don't get me off the hook. Don't let me be arrested because I'm about to finally become a Christian. <laughs> right? As, as he's about to be fed to the lions, he says, don't stop me from being born. <laughs> what is this? Like, it's this completely different conception of what it means to follow Christ. So looking to those stories and, and putting those as our paragons and our examples and our pillars of, of what we're looking to, um, not being afraid of theology and doctrine, so not, you know, we're founded by someone who, Barton Stone, didn't believe in the Trinity, Right? That was probably an error. Like, and that happened because we didn't talk about it. That was definitely an error. <laughs> Sorry, should say that a little bit stronger. He didn't believe Jesus was fully divine. That's a problem. Um, but 
it has kind of gone unaddressed for many years because we're scared to talk theologically. We're scared to talk about doctrine um, that uses words outside of scripture. And so that leads to moving to the creed. The Bible has a lot of words in it, right? Lots of words. And though we believe by faith that it doesn't contradict itself, at a surface level reading, it can contradict itself. And so we need lenses through which to read scripture. And one, the primary lenses that's been around since the apostles, um, think of Irenaeus as the first one to really write it out in his On the Apostolic Preaching. And he writes that in the second century. Everett Ferguson, do you guys know who that is? He has a great little book called The Rule of Faith that just came out a couple of years ago. It's like 90 pages long. And he looks through this about how it came from Irenaeus and, and became the Apostles' Creed. Um, and that's very much worth your time to read. It's a short read. But anyways, the Apostles' Creed, in case you don't know it, it says, I don't think you'll disagree with anything it says. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, he was buried, he descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again and ascended into heaven, where he seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. And so Irenaeus, who sat at the feet of Polycarp, who sat at the feet of the Apostle John, right, a pretty important guy in the Bible, um, he says that is what the, the apostles taught. And so he reads scripture through that lens. And so he's always looking for Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. He's looking for that. And so, and the thing is, we're, we're, we're scared of creeds in our tradition because we think that it's going to make scripture say something that it doesn't say. The reality is, whether you acknowledge it or not, you are reading scripture through certain lenses. Mm -hmm. So the call would be to read scripture through the lenses that the apostles gave us rather than ones that you've created. Um, and then another practice would be beauty, which a lot of our churches need help with. I'm at one of the few churches of Christ that looks like a basilica. And we don't, we don't like to advertise that too much. But many of us, we don't have any kinds of beauty. You would have no idea that you're in a church building, that this is a sacred space, uh, if someone didn't tell you out front. Okay, so in the last few minutes, Lord's Supper. The reason I think this is the place where we lean into and we make this vision practical um, is because, you know, there's only one other Protestant tradition that celebrates the Lord's Supper every single week. The Episcopalians. We don't trust Episcopalians, and we shouldn't. Um, but we're very weird as Protestants. Like, it's a very Roman Catholic, it's a very Greek Orthodox thing to do, to, or a very Anglican thing to do, to have communion every week. So, but it's one of our, our core commitments, right? This, uh, what was your name, sir, at the back? Dan. Dan, like Dan was saying, that's the reason the church comes together. The very, it's not for the sermon, it's not for the fellowship, it's to partake of the Lord's table. And you see it in, who remembers church on Sunday evenings? Who remembers the walk of shame? Okay? <laughs> right? So, at least in my church growing up, the church would still gather at 6 o'clock, and then right towards the end, after the second sermon of the day, you know, someone gets up and says, if you were not here this morning... Right. You can proceed to the elders' conference room <laughs> to take the Lord's Supper. So it's this weird thing because in our language, 
uh, about communion, we tend to be very Zwinglian. And uh, Ulrich Zwingli was a, a reformer uh, in, uh, somebody help me, yeah, in Basel, in Basel as opposed to Geneva, who believed that Christ was not present in uh, the Lord's Supper at all, that it was merely a time of remembrance. So a lot of times one of uh, the things that we always say in our prayers is we say, Lord, thank you for this bread, which represents, represents your body. Does Jesus ever say it represents his nope. body? Right? That's not in scripture, and yet we've added this thing. Into, it's very unchurch of Christ for us to do. Um, but anyway, we use that remembrance. It's formally, it's called, or it's called memorialist view of communion. We use that language, and yet we treat it like Roman Catholics treat it. We treat it like a sacrament. Because if it's just about remembrance, then why would we have the walk of shame on like Sunday night, right? That makes no, so anyways, uh, this, we have some rich commitments here. And so what we did at our church, and you're welcome to take this with you. I basically got two uh, studies that we did. We had a worship committee at church and we looked through uh, the primary biblical texts that speak of the Lord's Supper. And then we looked at three different resources from uh, the first two centuries of the church. So we looked at the letters of Ignatius, we looked at the Apology of Justin Martyr, uh, and what else did we look at? Oh, the Didache, which was, a, it was a, a handbook of church order from the turn of the first century. And what we tried to do is to identify uh, major themes that we saw throughout all of those. And th throughout the scripture ones, and this is where I have this here, and it's got discussion questions. It's very nice. Um, we found four themes that we saw uh, throughout the different scriptures. So it's the three synoptic accounts and then 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. John 6, you can go to as well as an overarching, but he's not specifically speaking about how to, how to do the Lord's Supper. So we, we left that out not to make anybody crazy. Um, anyway, four themes. Remembrance, right? of course, this do in remembrance of me. And every single one of our churches is very good at that. But there's three more themes. There's church unity, right? This mystical unity where, uh, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that when we partake of this one bread, we who are many uh, become one body in this mysterious way such that, you know, if you drink it unfaithfully, unworthily, you drink judgment upon yourself. Uh, and Alexander Campbell, you know, one of the founders of our movement, uh, he insisted, he took this so seriously, the unity, that he insisted you could only use one loaf of bread, right? Because you cannot break up like the symbolism and, and the symbol touching the reality. So he would be, one, he would be horrified by, you know, serving communion online, but he would be really horrified in, in our like little individual serve packets because we're breaking up what Christ has instituted. Now I'm not saying you know, to become a one-cup church, right? Like post-COVID, that's probably not safe. Um, but, you know, think about the reality that we're looking towards there. So remembrance, uh, church unity, uh, eschatological hope. So hope for the last things. Paul says we celebrate as, as long as you do this, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So there's two kinds of things happening there. One, you know, when we proclaim the Lord's death and that he has given us his body and his blood, uh, we're proclaiming what has happened. But at the same time, we're, we're you know, communion is, is this, it's, this, it's the word of God embodied, right? You hear the word of God preached, 
during the sermon, but, but at the table it's being offered to you. So it becomes this physical reality where you're invited to participate in the life of God through the gift of Jesus' body and his blood. So you're proclaiming these heavenly realities and also proclaiming that the Lord will come again. And I've never been to a communion talk where we talked about the reality that this is a foretaste of kingdom come, that the Lord will come on the clouds and then there will be no need for bread or wine because we'll have the thing itself. Uh, And then finally... um, the theme of the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, in communion, over and over. He says, this is my body, this is my blood. Paul tells us not to partake of it unworthily for a reason, because we could be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So my, like, my hot take is we should get rid of the this represents and instead just speak the words of Scripture, which this is my body, this is my blood, and, and, and make very plain to people you know, the glory and the gift of what's being offered to us um, here. Um, and so, how did we do that? Well, we went through the study, and we had various different uh, ways of implementing it. One way we did is we took those four themes, remembrance, unity, hope for last things, and the presence of Christ, and we rotated through those themes week by week by week for about a year. So we would go, one week it would be remembrance, the next week it would be hope, the next week it would be unity, the next week it would be um, the presence of Christ. And we rotated through that, and that went pretty, pretty well. Um, another option um, would be to go full bore and do it liturgically. So you have the same thing every week, and I have a sample of that uh, here. Um, during COVID, that's what we did. Because uh, I was the only one there. <laughs> so, and I just did it every single week. And some people liked that. Some people uh, didn't like that. And being in a free church, you, have to, you want to pivot. Um, you don't want to force things on people. But there's various different ways that you can do that. And you can eliminate the kind of TED Talk, you know, my, my story about your dog. Not that I care about your dog. It's just not, you know, the place for it at the Lord's table. And so what I've got in handouts is studies of those different texts. Um, I've got citations from the, the early church resources that I mentioned, uh, the Didache, Justin Martyr, and Ignatius. And then a sample like liturgy. If you wanted to move into a formal liturgy for uh, communion, then this would be an example. There's also lots of resources out there, which if you're interested, I would be happy uh, to point you to. Does anybody have any questions? I'm done. Does anybody have any questions? Right here? Yeah. <clears throat> I'm interested when you talk about the presence of Christ himself. I mean, all right around the Reformation, all of the key Reformation and then reaction from the Roman Catholic Church was about the meaning of what's happening. Mm-hmm during communion in terms of the real presence. Mm-hmm. Because we were going to the, the final authoritative source, what did your committee decide? Yeah. I think, <laughs> yeah. Well, I tried to not let them think about that too much. Um, but I, where we came to, I think Calvin is the closest onto this. I think the mistake that Rome makes is to overdefine it and to try to explain what is a miraculous uh, occurrence 
I think in the same way uh, Lutherans overdefine it, because they're they mm -hmm. almost say the same thing that Rome does, but they say the presence of Christ is with and under the substance of the bread. Uh, Rome moves to Aristotle's metaphysics in order to say like how the accidents remain, but the sub y'all don't care about this. Calvin just says the Lord is present, mm -hmm. and I think that's the right answer. I don't think it needs to be defined. Um, we don't try to define the resurrection. We believe by faith that it that it happened. So, and that's my that's my Church of Christ Protestant nature speaking. Is the text says this? It's not up for me to analyze it. It's up to me to proclaim what it says. Well, that that was really my question: is do you leave the mystery in there and let people figure it out or struggle through it themselves? I was kind of expecting you to give us the march through the. Uh, early church fathers, what each one of them said. Yeah. So. Well, I'm, I'm happy. I can give that to you. <laughs> Not in 45 minutes. They don't, so, like, d defining what's happening does not happen um, until, it really doesn't get solidified until Thomas Aquinas, and Aquinas is writing in the 13th century. And it really gets solidified because of these uh, controversies um, that, that are happening, especially William of Ockham comes along. And anyway, the early church fathers affirm uh, the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. They do not define it. Okay, um, at the very most, what they'll say, the example that's always used is um, fire and iron. So you heat up a piece of iron, and it's iron and it's fire. And those aren't separate, and they're both there. And that's what they'll use for the Eucharist. It's still bread, Christ is present. Yes. Calvin uh, would say that, that Christ is present through the Holy Spirit. Yes. In the bread. Yeah. Uh, but in addition to that, Christ is present at the table as the host. Mm -hmm. If we celebrate a risen Savior, mm -hmm. it is his table. He invites us, the old restoration we neither invite nor debar. Right. Uh, it is the Lord's table. So I think the stress ought to be that we meet the Lord not necessarily only in the bread and cup, which is his body and blood mm -hmm. uh, by means of the Spirit, mm -hmm. but we commune with the Lord and he is communing with us as he is the host at his table. Yeah, yeah. Calvin sees us as being like in that moment, though, you know, we're communing with the Lord in various different ways, but in that moment, the church is being elevated up to heaven. And right, so especially in that moment, and that's why the church comes together to do it every single week, because that's the moment where we have the foretaste of the kingdom and we're taken into heaven. Calvin would also, talking about spiritually present, Calvin was very worried about, you know, he really was strong on that Jesus still has a body. <laughs> Right? He still has a human body. He was resurrected. His body looked, it does different things. It can walk through doors, apparently. It can appear and disappear. People could not recognize him, but he still has a human body. And a human body cannot be multiple places at once. So what he was trying to protect by saying it's the spirit is the reality of the resurrection. Yes, right here. Can you give a thought to towards uh, practically making a communion Mm -hmm. We, from a practical standpoint, we have 10 or 15 guys mm -hmm. at a rotate street. Mm -hmm. Resources for them 
we do it the way we've seen it done. We yeah. do it the way it's been patterned to us. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times that really is bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people go off the rails. Yeah. But is there some resources that we can use for the 10 or 15 people yes. that are leading the whole congregation? Mm -hmm. And it's a very important thing. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the reason that it loses its significance mm -hmm. is because the people that are leading it mm -hmm. don't understand exactly, or they yeah. do it the way they've always seen it. Right? Yeah. I think so. There's a couple things I would say. One is, one, I think in, in that case, like some kind of formal liturgy, even if it's just you're going to hit these themes in each one is appropriate. Because a lot of times, you know, people do want to keep the. Um, the, connect, the relational feel, which is one of the good things that we have. And so it doesn't have to be as rigid as the liturgy I have there. Um, so two things. One, I would look, uh, pick up, you know, Everett Ferguson's book, Early Christians Speak, um, and you can look, and he has citations just about the Lord's Supper from all the writers in the early church. So you can see what the early church said. Most Church of Christ people are going to be on board with that. Um, and then there's also uh, a book called... Um, common worship that's produced by I'll look it up here in a minute but it's produced by I think Calvin College and what it has is essentially scripture readings and liturgical ideas for low church like us uh, congregations that can really really help you tie into not only communion and a liturgy for that but also to the church calendar itself in a very authentic kind of Protestant Bible-based way. What was that last book? It's, it's called Common Worship. Uh, Dan, you, you've been raising your... Yes. Can you give me the meaning of Eucharist and where it comes from? Yes, it's cut, it comes from Eucharisteo, meaning it's Greek for Thanksgiving. And uh, the early church tends to, rather than saying the Lord's Supper um, or communion, they tend to say Eucharist, where we give thanksgiving to the Lord for the gift that Christ has given us. Yes, and also is it heresy when someone says it represents or it um, signifies the, the, like the bread, the body of Christ? No, I wouldn't use that strong of a word <laughs> with it. Um, like it, can, it confuses me it, it confuses me in our tradition that we use that language when that language isn't found in scripture. And in other ways, we stay pretty close to what scripture says. And during communion, is it okay for the members to sing while they're passing uh, the Lord's table? Or it is, it is not? I, I, don't, I don't think there's, I can't give a hard ruling on that. I would suggest doing anything that eliminates the possibility of turning the supper into an individual meal. Yeah. So reading scripture, singing, talking, passing the bread, yeah. and this is the body of Christ for you, you know, speaking to one another, doing just about anything that eliminates the possibility of turning the supper into a moment of personal piety. Right. And that's kind of what happens when it's just off, off at the side. One of the, one of the kind of beautiful results of uh, COVID, there's been some beautiful results, 
is that though we, you know, though we now have like these individual serve uh, communion cups, you know, y'all have those too? And then we have a piece of bread and a separate Ziploc bag because the communion cups were too difficult to open and we received lots of complaints about that. But what, what's happened now, now you can do this with passing. Like when you're passing, we don't pass the bread still, right? That hasn't changed for us. Now when you do that, you can, you can defeat individualism by having each person, when they pass it, say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you and see each other. But what we have is people grab communion prior to the service and then during the service, when we take it, we actually all take it together, <laughs> which has been this really beautiful kind of outcome. Okay, I think I have to shut us down, but I'm happy to talk to anybody or send you emails.